Escaped Sapiens. If nuclear disasters like Chernobyl and Fukushima had never happened, then would the world now be powered by nuclear, and would climate change be nothing more than a thought experiment? Is climate change an existential threat, or is it all overblown hype? Why is global warming so political? Has the world reached peak carbon emissions, and where does the money go when you paid carbon offset your flights and train trips? This is a conversation with Glenn Peters, Research Director at the Center for International Climate Research in Norway. My goal in this conversation was really to sidestep any political mudflinging and find out realistically where we stand with climate change. Once the media noise is stripped away, a remarkably interesting story emerges that mixes human psychology, advanced technologies, environmental destruction and species extinction together with competing economic and political interests. And despite some of the inherent gloom in the topic, Glenn's calm and good-natured take on the story is somehow remarkably refreshing. I hope you enjoy. Well, see, this is where I sort of wanted to start because in terms of attitudes, uh, there's really a broad range because you, on the one hand, you get apocalypse and anxiety all the way through to people who are completely indifferent or who think it's completely overblown, I guess, everything in between. And so um, I guess to set a baseline or to, just to get some perspective, what is the worst case scenario? So, so what's the, you know, is this an existential risk? I guess according to some it is, yes. Mm-hmm. Where, but I, <clears throat> it depends on how you define um, existential as well. Um, you know, is that the end of humans or just a, a major impact on humans? Is it the end of life as we know it? Like, you know, dinosaur impact, everything goes uh, type thing. Um, I tend to think that the Earth system is probably pretty resilient. So... Um, you may give it a, a pretty big impact uh, with, you know, loss of, let's say, life or biodiversity or, or whatever, but it will somehow recover. There's a question of time scale and all that sort of stuff. So, but I don't think, you know, extinction by 2050 or something is remotely plausible. But I suppose people are talking, you hear people talk about um, the permafrost melting, for example, and then uh, methane being released and having this run, runaway climate change, um, this runaway effect. Is that realistic? Is that something um, that is likely to happen? Or is, is there any uh, path through which you can see this sort of a scenario unfolding? Yeah, the main issue is time scale, really. So those things can happen. It's a question of what time scale do they happen over? And, you know, it might be, so it's not going, it's not as if there's many suggesting even that there would be a mass release of permafrost. It'd be some, let's say, chronic leakage over thousands of years. So, you know, maybe the temperature, you know, if it was going up two degrees, maybe it would go up three degrees because of permafrost, but this is happening over hundreds slash thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So these things, and it comes back to your question on existential, it's a lot to do with um, uh, time scale, really. Mm -hmm. But are there sort of hard limits? So for example, do you get into a stage where uh, sea level rise wipes out all your power stations so you can no longer release carbon dioxide? Or is there just a limitation in the amount of, um, of carbon in the system? Could we become Venus, for example? No. Uh, No. No. Not okay. that, that that's my area of expertise, but no. <laughs> I see. Well, that would be very highly unlikely, I think. Um, 
but I mean, in terms of like things like power stations or, or so on, the, the sea level will rise, yes, but it will rise slow enough that we would be able to, new builds would happen at higher ground, for example. There are other, probably bigger risks to power stations is water availability. Mm-hmm. So, for example, coal, nuclear, all require cooling. Um, and so if you don't have access to water, then, yeah, so if there's a drought, quite often in drought, you have to shut down power plants because of you can't cool the plant. Um, a few examples of this in the Hunter Valley, actually. So it's not on the ocean. Um, so when you're not on the ocean, then you run into cooling problems. Mm-hmm. So, so that's sort of the upper upper side of things. Is what's what's the um, just due to the momentum of the system? What's the lower bound on on what we could possibly see? What, what is the um, lowest temperature rise you expect to see over the next say hundred years or so? And, and what what's the sort of the, the 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 likely range? Yeah. So if you reduced you know, if we did everything possible to avoid climate change, so radically reduced emissions, everyone was on board, etc., then you may be able to stay below 1.5 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably would overshoot it a little bit because we're so close to that target. You'll get into definitions of how do you measure the average temperature and, and so on. But you know, that's, a, that's probably the best case outcome would be 1.5 degrees. You can cool... Or bring the temperatures back down afterwards, although it's a complicated process. Um, but let's say 1.5 is probably pushing the lower end. Where we're sort of heading, that's also a pretty hard question to answer. But um, based on where current policies and pledges put us, we're sort of you know in the let's say two and a half to three degree range, or two to three degree range, depending on whose numbers you want to pick up and how you want to focus on the uncertainty but let's say just to take an average let's say two and a half degrees if you hit two and a half degrees by 2100 Mm -hmm. then the temperature would keep rising after that so essentially the temperature keeps rising until you get to zero emissions and so if you're not zero emissions in 2100 and you're 2.5 degrees then you will keep going up after so that's the let's say probably the current prognosis roughly Okay, so with within by the time we're dead, it's going to be sitting around two degrees or a bit higher, um, is yep. what you would expect. Why? Yep. Why? Why is that? So I've asked other people this question, and uh, I want to get sort of a better idea, a better feel for it. Why? Why does that actually matter? So, so when you when you look at the variation in temperature around the world, uh, from summer to winter, from Australia to you know winter in Canada you get these huge 80 degree variations or maybe 100 degree variations. So why does two degrees average temperature change? Why is that important? Yeah, so different ways to address that. So two degrees global average is also going to separate between, you have to separate between land and ocean. So on land, that'll be higher, probably about three degrees. I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but you know, let's say two and a half, three degrees. Um, if the global average is two, if you go to the northern latitudes, so up here in Norway, <laughs> then um, yeah, you're probably looking at four degrees on land. Mm-hmm. So there's some pretty big changes. Um, one of the or one of the main problems in that context is the the speed that you can adapt. Let's say so if you've got crops or forests or whatever which is adapted over a long period of time to certain temperature ranges. 
if you change those temperature ranges at a sustained level um, mm -hmm. for decade after decade, then it takes time for that, let's say, vegetation to adapt or, or whatever. Um, from one perspective, you can think about it, you know, I'm from Australia, so, you know, 40 degree day, that's, you know, not unusual. Uh, in Norway, you know, 30 degree day, it's, you know, front page of the news for the next week. Um, so there is some resilience there, but if you're living at the threshold, so if you're, let's say, living in Sydney in Australia and 40 becomes 42 and 42 becomes 44 and, and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. then you might start thinking about relocating and mm -hmm. you know, there will be health impacts. You know, older people might um, die because of heat stress and, and so on and so forth. So it also depends where you are on that margin. Mm -hmm. um, but a, a sort of a theme that's been coming across there and some of the things I've been mentioning is adaptation. So how fast can you move or adapt or get out of the situation? So clearly adaptation needs to play a role. Mm -hmm. So, and I guess, yeah, 45 is, there's a big difference between a 45 day and a 40 day. As well. yeah. <laughs> I mean, one yeah. is really horrible. Have, what are your thoughts? Well, so why do you think that this issue is so polarizing? Because as far as I understand, scientists are more or less in lockstep. Is, is the division happening at the level of the science or, or is it a media thing or where is the division happening? And does scientists bear any responsibility for muddying the water or um, for, for any alarmism? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I haven't thought about deeply, but um, let's so, you know, from the scientific perspective, there's very little, let's say, debate on the core aspects. Of course, you know, when you get into details, there's, you know, differences, you know, there's the, the standard scientific arguments, but in terms of the big picture, there's complete agreement, um, more or less. <laughs> um, how do you define a complete agreement? So, that, but, but I think when you start talking about solutions, um, then that's where the problems come in. So some solutions, uh, actually most solutions are going to hit existing um, companies, mm -hmm. big coal, oil, gas, powerful companies will be the most affected, big nations, uh, Saudi Arabia, Australia for coal, Russia, you know, these uh, fossil fuel exporters will be heavily impacted. So there's going to be very strong vested interests. And I think those vested interests often align politically, whether through, um, I don't know, ideology or whether through um, uh, um, funding. Uh, <laughs> funding, that's the word I was after, thanks. Um, and and so I, I th do think you do get some lining up of those forces um, and therefore also I think voters um, therefore also get polarised um, mm -hmm. because they also have political ideologies and, you know, my team um, is supporting the coal industry and, and so therefore I support the coal industry and, and so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. I think it really comes down to solutions if the solution to the climate problem was, you know, you just put a little instrument inside the power plant and it all is all solved, then I think we would have solved it. There's no problem. But because the solution is going to have a huge change in who the winners and losers are, then you see the start to see the conflict.
But do you see, for example, or was there um, conflict at the research level coming from uh, funding from uh, institutions? So, for example, uh, was there research done or is there research done by scientists who are backed by, I don't know, big oil companies that sort of muddies what's happening? That, that, that doesn't sound like that's actually a, a big influence by what you're saying. It's not a big influence, um, in my opinion. Some may disagree. Of course, you get institutes which have fossil fuel support, um, particularly, let's say, if you go to the US, some bigger institutes will have um, uh, funding by yeah, oil companies and, and so on and so forth. This is not uncommon, particularly when you get to the private um, universities. Um, but even if you look at Norway with research funding, there's, you know, funding comes from different ministries, oil and gas energy is one ministry that provides funding so you could say indirectly i'm somehow funded by oil even though there's not a real direct line um but i don't think it has let's say an overly big influence or i don't think it's a, a problematic influence um fossil fuel companies funding other things such as um, funding organizations which try and confuse matters is more of a, a problem mm -hmm. i think so more um, at the media level yeah well yeah i'd extrapolate a little bit from media let's say more pr lobbying all mm -hmm. those sorts of yeah so you know various fossil fuel companies have been known to have known that climate change was a problem but mm -hmm. funded bodies or themselves to go out and say that it's a, a load of crap basically mm -hmm. take a australian prime minister's <laughs> word tony abbott saying it was a load of crap but um yeah but maybe just to add something so on the polarization another aspect where this could come in from the researcher side so a little bit blaming <laughs> researchers here is many of the solutions end up looking like um big government mm -hmm. so you know world government we need a overarching authority that um, can regulate greenhouse gas emissions, global trading systems, and, and so on and so forth. So many of the solutions look like um, reorganizing <laughs> the world mm -hmm. in a way that meets the, the dreams of all leftists. Um, I see. Yeah. Um, and then people will start, there's all these arguments saying that uh, universities and research institutions are left-leaning to start with, and I suppose then you get uh, creeping yeah. of politics. Yeah, yeah. So all, all those sorts of issues start to, to meddle, yeah, sort of find their, find their way in there. So if you, yeah. yeah, if you're pushing that the solution also solves global poverty and mm -hmm. um, aid to developing countries, and, you know, so all the... the um, red alerts that go out to, let's say, the right of politics um, quite often get wrapped up together with climate solutions as sort of co-benefits in a sense. Mm -hmm. And then, so you do get a lot of pushback that, you know, this is going to, um, you know, solving climate change is just a, a method you're using to try and have world government or to solve this problem or that problem or, or whatever. I see. Um, so a research, so you're saying, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but are you saying, for example, a researcher will say, here is a solution to this problem and hey here's an, an excellent side effect is this will have this you know there are these uh implications down the line and that is seen as an immediate no-go area for uh people of a certain political persuasion let's say yeah whether that that direct um connection is made to that co-benefit um or whether people just extrapolate that 
okay, you're talking about a global trading system or, you know, solving this global problem um, and, you know, add a few dots. Therefore, um, that ultimately means, you know, world government or, or whatever. So it might be the, the person that is against climate action that sort of blows it up and makes it sound that way. But also you do get researchers um, which, let's say, push solutions which also do look like global governments. Mm -hmm. Another sort of example of that would be China, where people will use China as an example as how things can happen. You know, China's not a democracy. Um, you know, they can force things upon the population. And this is how you can solve climate change. You know, if we didn't have democracy and didn't have these political infights, we just had a global leader or a country leader dictator that did what we wanted, basically, then we could solve these problems. So China is often brought up as an example as a sort of country that has a political system where you could top down get things to happen because mm -hmm. you don't have political infights between left and right and the climate wars is, is set in Australia and, and so on. Hmm. So th there's many layers to this problem of different dimensions, but um, it comes back to some of the solutions are not going to be attractive to particularly the right side of politics. Ironically, I say ironically because quite often the right side of politics likes economic instruments um, and would probably gladly implement um, climate policy through a, a carbon price or emissions trading system because that is what they like. Um, but uh, yeah, for some reason, the whole debate seems to get owned and take, taken over by the left and therefore the right seems to be against it, even though some of the solutions would be their preferred solutions. Um, mm -hmm. Which is actually say, kind of sad. Some, <laughs> yeah, which is sad. You, you do see some governments, the UK is a good example, where it's a, a conservative government, but they're doing a lot on climate. Um, and they argue it, that it's good for the economy and so on and so forth. So I think over time, these things will drift and change mm -hmm. as various party, you know, political parties and leaders change generation and so on and so forth. So I think it will eventually change more widespread, be more accepted. Um, but you definitely see a, a left-right tension mm -hmm. in, the, in the climate debate. It might be the case that as new technology comes online, it becomes easier to solve these, you know, problems without stepping on people's toes, and then it becomes a more of a central issue or bipartisan. Uh, hopefully, yeah. So with electric cars is a good example of that. So electric cars in Norway, um, uh, the sort of bipartisan support, both sides of politics. Uh, electric cars in Australia is very political and is being politicised. Um, but, you know, to anyone that's driven an electric car, it's, you know, it's a car, it's got four wheels and a steering wheel and an accelerator and a brake. And um, uh, you just, instead of going to the service station and putting in petrol, you park out the front of a charger or you have a charger at home and, and plug in a cable. So it's, um, other than that, it's basically the same. Yeah. In fact, so it's probably better to drive the electric car because it's uh, performance wise, it has a lot of extra features that you don't get in a petrol car. And if you can recharge it at home, it's even better. Yeah. yeah. So and on... if you're a petrol head and like going fast, then you would get an electric car. Uh, no. they, yeah. So on, on the personal side then, um, you know, I one thing I sort of wanted to get your 
opinion on is I'm increasingly meeting people who are saying things along the lines of they're going to make radical changes in their lives, um, uh, such as um, not having children, for example, um, either because they are in, they're scared of the impact that children will have on the environment or they're scared about the world that they're going to bring their children into. What's your... What's your opinion or what are your thoughts on this line of thinking? Um, do you think, you know, is, is this um, a level of alarmism that's sort of out of touch with what's happening or, or what are your thoughts? Yeah, so people might have their sort of personal views and preferences to that, of course, so it gets to a very personal issue. Um, but if I think, you know, you, you can think of it in different ways. You can think about if you don't have a kid, then, you know, that's one less person. And if everyone, you know, or lots of people did the same, then that would be a lot less people and it'd be easier to solve the climate problem, et cetera, et cetera. Although I, I tend not to think that that's necessarily the right way to think about it. So if you think that a kid comes from two people, then, you know, just having one kid, for example, um, would lead to a declining population. I think even having two kids leads to a declining population because, you know, some of the kids die or die early or, or whatever. So, you know, having one or two kids would lead to a declining population over time. Um, there are parts of the world that have a lot more kids than, than that, but as they generally get educated and um, so on and so forth, so develop and hopefully that can be accelerated, then they tend to have a lot less kids and get to a steady state where they have, you know, one or two kids per, per mother. So I think population, in a sense, can almost naturally be controlled, um, or not controlled is not the right word, will sort of naturally um, come to a declining situation if we continue developing the way that we're developing. Actually, a lot of population projections going out to the end of the century will show a peak in population and then then a decline, which is basically saying globally on average, um, uh, mothers are having less than two kids. Um, so yeah, if you so if you decide not to have a kid, then yeah, I'm not sure that it's going to solve much in terms of the climate problem, even if lots of parents did it. You could say you have one kid instead of two kids or, or whatever. Yeah. On the climate impacts, that's also, uh, you know, will you be uh, your kid be coming into a world which is going to become some, uh, yeah, disaster, what, catastrophe or, or whatever? Maybe, but that's putting a pretty low hope in civilization to doing something. You know, even if the world, you know, as you said at the start, you know, the world may be, Heading, let's say, two and a half degrees, three degrees, worst case, something like that. Um, are those impacts manageable um, if you adapt adequately and, and so on and so forth? So it might not be pleasant or as nice as we have it or, or whatever, but is it ma um, manageable? So, yeah, I, I, I think you probably have some pretty strong views if you decide not to have kids for those reasons alone there might be other reasons that mix into that equation as well but purely on a climate um a climate just purely on a climate basis i think it's pretty hard to make a strong argument for not having kids to put it that way
Well, I think that people will make those arguments. Well, it, it's just interesting because I'm hearing it uh, more and more in sort of the last one or two years um, from quite a few people. And in my mind, it's always seemed like a little bit of a red herring because when you, obviously the more people there are, the, the greater the impact. But at the same time, you can also see uh, per capita, different countries have vastly different impact. And one thing that I've always wondered about is um, in the West, is it possible to live a carbon negative lifestyle as an individual? Because of course, there's what you can do as an individual, um, but there's also sort of the system that you live in and that supports you, which has some some impact. Is it possible to have a um, carbon negative lifestyle in Oslo, for example? Today, no. Um, in the future, well, hopefully. <laughs> um, ultimately, this really comes down to a technology question. I'm being a little bit careful the way I say that. There, there's, of course, some, um, let's say, personal decisions, some behavioural decisions, but uh, allowing for some behavioural decisions, which makes it easier. We can come back to those later. But it becomes a, a technology solution. So just to take a... Um, easy example, if you produce electricity with coal or if you produce it with hydropower, then um, the impact of the same lifestyle would be considerably lower with the hydro-based system than the coal-based system. So in a sense, if you just overnight were able to put all um, electricity generation to be non-fossil, then you can have pretty much the same lifestyle with very little impact. There will be still impacts because, you know, how are you producing the, the cement that goes into the foundation for the wind turbine, which um, is not related to energy and, and so on and so forth. So you can always get into those sorts of arguments. But um, by and large, if you have, let's say, a relatively sustainable lifestyle, whatever that means, then you should be able to live, let's say, carbon neutral or carbon negative or, or whatever lifestyle there's no i don't think there's any physical reason of why that's not possible mm -hmm. um that's not to say that it's completely environmentally benign but you know big picture you should be able to have a technological system that drives close to zero emissions and then there's other ways to, to get up. Uh, to, there's other ways to reduce um, that last little bit of emission that you may not be able to get get away with, say the cement from the wind turbine. And then on the lifestyle side, um, you know, if you eat a lot of meat, um, that's going to make it harder. If you fly a lot, that's going to make it harder. If you consume a lot, that's going to make it harder. So if you have, let's say, a you know, relatively frugal lifestyle without, you know, living in a cave, of course, then um, it makes the job a lot easier. So, for example, clothes, um, you know, as most people will probably notice, they don't tend to last as long as they used to. I probably still have in my drawer clothes that I wore when I went to school, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, whereas if um, I bought a, a shirt, you know, five years ago, it's probably well and truly fallen to pieces now. So, you know, without much difference in material potentially um, you can have products with longer lifestyle uh, uh, longer lifetime there may be various means that companies don't want to produce products with long lifetimes 
because they want to be able to sell you a new t-shirt every every second month mm-hmm. for example so um th- there's various configurations of the economic system which relates a little bit to our behavior that might greatly reduce impacts as, as well so mm-hmm. yeah to come back to your question yes i think it's possible to, <laughs> to live carbon negative if the system that you live in is designed in that way one of the one of the reasons why i became interested in this question on the social side is because so um my partner she's um she's vegetarian which means that uh when i eat with her which is often it's vegetarian and so that has had a market impact on my own consumption of meat um, and now even when I am eating by myself, I often go for vegetarian uh, options, even if I'm not a vegetarian. And so it, it made me think, you know, you, you can have these impacts on a si- When you have a system which is producing huge amounts of carbon uh, emissions, then there's lots of areas that as an individual, it seems you can cut out. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, currently it depends on how you count who is responsible for that carbon. But if, for example, she got credits for the fact that she's um, cutting off a little bit of my uh, meat consumption, then maybe she already lives a carbon negative. I'm not sure, but um, uh, it's those sort of social things that I'm sort of interested in. But um, another thing I'm interested in is um, uh, your thoughts on movements like uh, the climate strike movements, for example, Um, because you know, in, in, so I'm, I'm in Berlin and, and there every now and again, you you have, um, you know, a climate strike Fridays for future or whatever's going on. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the level of, uh, alarmism in, in movements like this. Is it, is it at the right level? Does it have, uh, are these movements necessary for, uh, changing policy, um, or, or, or are they pitching these things at a, at a level which causes anxiety and, and knock-on effects that are unhelpful? Or what, what's what's your view on movements like this? You might have to be careful, I realize. But uh. <laughs> yeah, I, I think all of the. I, I, I don't think there'll be a general. Not sure that's possible to make a generalization. I think you would get all those factors play a role. So some might get um, have anxiety issues or get anxiety issues. Some may not, but what statistically, yeah, across the spectrum, who knows? Maybe there's some studies or surveys out there, and um, you know, maybe some uh, are um, making it sound worse than it is. Maybe some are not. Maybe some of them are actually correct, um, and scientists are being too conservative, and and so on. So, um, I think that is all in the mix. Um, and that's probably standard across any sort of protest movement. There's within that movement, uh, there's probably a variety of opinions and variations. There's no standard view. Mm. Um, so, yeah, if you if you take um, uh, Greta Thunberg as an example, um, you know some critique her that she's maybe pushing the science too far or or, or whatever, which generally I don't think that she is. Um, she's pretty much in in line with the sort of consensus view mm-hmm. maybe some things are framed in a way or mentioned in a way which um may make it sound um worse or, or whatever but i i'm not sure that that's uh um 
that's sort of in a sense hard to avoid if you're talking about climate impacts and potential impacts and and so on and so forth then of course you will be saying mentioning mm-hmm. some bad impacts and people might question well is that true and mm-hmm. you can go back and find out the studies that suggest that this could be true and, and so on and so forth so you know broadly um you know I, i'd say most of the broad movement is consistent with the science mm-hmm. noting that there will be elements that will go beyond the science and so on and so forth um whether the movements are needed i think an interesting question is which i was asking myself um probably two years ago pre-corona um where does this movement go now so mm-hmm. in two years will it be still still sustainable for um uh these protests to be happening continually and nothing happening on the government side so who who backs off first <laughs> does the government mm-hmm. implement policies or do the protesters get sick of it um uh or what is the how much let's say lip service or how much does the a government have to do to get the protesters to back off um and i i still don't know the answer to that question um but you know you could ask you know going back to greta again um you know she's getting older she'll maybe one day be a university student then maybe she'll be um uh married and have kids and and you know will she still be sitting out the front of the swedish parliament protesting as a school kid so she will have to evolve um over time as she you know as a person develops and and so will a lot of these marches as they get older and um so yeah i don't know where this movement will go or where it will take us um and and maybe it's having an effect it's hard to gauge if it's having an effect or or how big that effect is so there's more climate policy there's certainly a lot more attention to the mm-hmm. con- to to climate um governments talk about it whether they talk about it and do something about it, it's a different question but the role you know maybe climate movements have played played a significant part in that it's mm-hmm. very hard to I guess uh, it shows governments how people might vote at the next election, right? I mean, you you see green parties uh, in various countries taking a bigger pr- proportion of the vote. Um, that it's that alone might change the way that uh, governments implement policy. Might. So Norway is Norway just had an election, and um, it was you know said to be the climate election and so on and so forth and broadly speaking parties with stronger climate um um did marginally better i'd say marginally uh so they, <laughs> uh it's not as if they took over and are running the show mm-hmm. so the the government is a now a left government from a right government to a left government but it's still a relatively it's a coalition but a relatively conservative coalition all the strong environmental parties are outside of the coalition um the right side still did reasonably well you know a lot of the these things that's you know 51% 49% or 49% 51% it's not as if um you get a mass movement and the left all of a sudden takes 75 or 90% or whatever of the vote and has a really strong climate agenda that we drive through so i still think we're talking marginal shifts to the political spectrum 
I, I don't know how you would classify what happened in Germany. But um, Australia has an election coming up and, you know, climate will be an, ele an element of that election, I'm mm -hmm. sure. But I don't think we'll see any large scale shifts to the left because of climate. Mm -hmm. You know, some people shifting around here and there, but those people were probably already over there anyway. So it's a question of whether people on the right start to vote for people on the left because of climate. That's a more complex. Well, on, on that question, do you think it would be strategically a good idea to separate the issue of climate change from sort of equity and justice? Uh, I mean, you were speaking earlier about um, people proposing solutions, which, um, you know, they, they talk about um, movements of populations and all these sorts of things. Um, but do you think that's a, that might be a strategic uh, mistake to, to construct these couplings from the left side? I was going to say yes. The, the difficulty is, can you actually do that? Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to do. So, because the solutions will necessarily uh, implement changes on the yeah. side. So another good Australian example. <laughs> um, um, because I know those examples best. But so Australia had a carbon tax and mm -hmm. uh, for a period under Julie Gillard, and that carbon tax redistributed wealth as well. So low income households got um, uh, lower tax rate or basically cash in the pocket, uh, which more than compensated for what their estimated tax increase would be for the carbon tax. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, this was a win for low income um, mm. households. In particular, um, but that was very successfully used by Tony Abbott to get that um, carbon tax dropped because he was politically very good at making it sound like it was the worst thing in existence. <laughs> but if you're going to introduce a carbon tax, for example, then you probably need to do some redistribution along the way to deal with the inequities that that might produce. So it's like when you adjust the tax brackets or whatever, you need to do some different things. So, you know, the, minimizing the winners and losers in a sense in some way, but still giving that policy signal. So it's very, so let's say you might, for example, get a, someone on the right of politics who might be happy with the carbon tax, but not happy with the redistribution to mm -hmm. lower income households, for example, I, I don't know. But so you've got all these issues which get chucked in there. So it's very hard to differentiate them. But in terms of an activist sense, so extracting uh, to much bigger scale, and now we're talking about India and development and Africa and all these sorts of things. Um, those countries, of course, are going to have much bigger impact. So there's huge equity issues there. But let's say for political expedience um, within a, a small rich country um, like Norway or Australia, you may well focus or it may best be to focus on the, I don't know, economically efficient or whatever the policy instrument for that particular country and try and extract from the bigger picture issues of the climate, you know, just basically we have a, a pollution problem in the electricity sector or the transport sector and where here's some policies that are going to deal with that problem. Um, 
as opposed to making it more abstract, climate, global, big issues mm-hmm. type thing, very specific mm-hmm. and focused to mm-hmm. solutions, basically. Mm-hmm. Very but concrete. I, just to say, well. I, I, I would say no one's nailed this, right? No one mm-hmm. knows what to do here. And you can have as many good ideas or think you've got many good ideas, but in practice, there's basically been no country or very few countries that have successfully implemented deep and meaningful climate policies. You could say maybe countries like the UK, but there's also a little bit of luck in the sense of old power stations and so on there. But no one really has the solutions here. If we had the solutions, we would be going about implementing them. So we don't really know how to get around a lot of these vested interest issues, uh, these political issues, equity issues, and and so on, so that you can further or can implement climate policies that are deep and meaningful. But but are are the solutions in some sense already? there you just have to pull them out of the weeds somewhat because as you said the uk right so if you look at norway or the uk or france and you compare those countries to um australia or the us or even mongolia or somewhere like why why is it that you know um france can do so well as and australia is not so well (laughs) yeah yeah so the solution the solutions are there now that's definitely the case certainly for what we need for the next let's say 10 20 plus years the solutions are are there waiting ready to go um it's to get policies which get the solutions on the road and running Mm. and implemented and so yeah so the, the positive examples at the moment, uh, very specific examples. Um, so if we take the UK, UK has basically got out of coal and electricity generation. So first, it had a lot of coal in its electricity generation. Second, the coal was very old. Um, and so, you know, it was a bit on the nose anyway. <laughs> and, um, and three, they probably had to do something about it. So um, you know, you've got a gift. It's not as if the UK has been able to reduce emissions in the transport sector, for example. Um, Norway is even struggling to do that, even though you know basically every car sold is electric. Um, so the countries that have been successful with solutions also have a little bit of an advantage in that they have old power plants. Um, uh, they are sort of in a situation where they needed to do something anyway and what the solution they chose is probably the best solution regardless of climate <laughs> I see. Uh, because yeah re- wind and renewables are getting cheaper and so on and so forth so um yeah but to get those so to get policies implemented which would accelerate the closure of coal power plants so the coal power plants were shut early hmm. um prematurely and people sold cars and um, trashed them before the car's end of life, then that, that's the sort of, sort of, in a sense, that's to meet these aggressive climate goals, you have to basically shut down existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And this is a part of the, the problem that we're at. So in some countries, that existing infrastructure was being shut down anyway. But if you go to a China 
that existing infrastructure is only 10 years old and it's got another 40 years ahead of it. Um, and so to shut that down is a very different equation um, to shutting it down in the UK or the US and even in Australia. Hmm. Um, so are we at peak emissions then? Uh, where, where are we at in terms of uh, emissions? Are things flattening out? So pre-corona... 2019, we were talking about whether emissions were peaking. So that was a lot of the discussion at the sort of the edge, you know, the forefront. Are emissions peaking? You now emissions were still going up a little bit, but there's some indication that um, we we're close to a peak. Um, then Corona came and it messes up our data. We have two years of bad data now. Um, one big drop, one big increase. Um, and it will take a couple of years to, for the numbers to settle down again, for society to get back to whatever normal will be post-corona. But then after that, let's say 23, 24, 2023, 2024, I think we'll start talking about peak emissions again. There's a few sort of dynamics of why we're at that situation. Um, so you know, there's more rapid deployment of uh, sorry, wind and solar and so on, electric vehicles coming along. So they're starting to, to make a difference. Um, but in, at the same time, the economy generally gets more efficient over time in terms of its energy use and, and so on and so forth. So it's also getting a little bit more efficient in its use of carbon because of things like wind and, and solar. And so the improvements in efficiency at the aggregate level, let's say globally, is starting to get similar to the rate of growth of GDP. And mm -hmm. so when the efficiency improves faster than GDP, then emissions will start to, to peak. So we're sort of getting close to that cusp a little bit because of climate, a little bit, I mean, climate policy and a little bit because of technology costs going down. And so... Yeah, jump forward to 2023, 2024, we'll be talking about those dynamics again, I think. So, but if you look at individual companies, for example, uh, Germany, have they, have, as an individual company, because they have a huge green energy rollout, right? Are they at peak carbon or? Yeah, so most of the developed world, most, let's say, OECD countries have peaked. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, and they're on the way down. Yeah, and there's, there's reasons for that um, as well, important reasons for that that need to be considered. This comes back to the equity situation and it comes back to why some of these countries are doing well. So if you're a rich country that has everything, then most of those countries have fairly flat energy consumption. So the energy consumption is not growing over time. Their population is flat, more or less. Um, and so if they have a retiring power plant, coal power plant, um, they just basically build enough wind and solar or, or whatever to replace that capacity. So any new wind and solar displaces existing coal, essentially, because energy use is flat. If you go to a China and India, you have a different situation. The energy use is going up like this. Um, particularly in India, they're striving to develop and uh, lift people out of poverty and, and consume more energy and have the lifestyle that the rest of the world has or, you know, the, the developed world has. So their energy consumption is growing rapidly. So they're doing whatever they can to build new energy. So 
if they throw solar and wind and they're doing a lot of solar and wind, it's just adding to existing demand. Mm -hmm. They're also throwing in coal and gas and whatever else, and this is all adding. So in the developing parts of the world, energy use is growing so fast that any non-fossil sources that are built, renewable sources that are built, are just adding on top of existing demand and not displacing coal. Mm -hmm. um, so this also comes back to the peaking question globally. So if you think that some countries are declining, OECD, Europe, you know, generally trending downwards, not too fast, but <laughs> trending downwards, the rest of the world trending upwards, you've got this sort of tug of war, as I like to call it, between the countries declining and rising. So you're sort of trying to judge when will developed countries go down fast enough and or developing yeah. countries grow slow enough that when you add the two, the global total goes down. Hmm. But we're sort of getting close to that situation. Does the calculation depend on whether you, uh, for individual countries, depend on whether you count consumption or production? So for example, are we just offshoring a lot of our uh, fossil fuel emissions to, you know, uh, uh, we import a lot of products from China, for example. Um, if if you counted that sort of offshoring, is the West and our OECD countries really declining in their um, emissions? Yes. Okay. Is <laughs> the short answer, the, the, the long answer. Um, yeah. So the so the rich world, OECD, let's say, just to call that the rich world, uh, is a net importer of carbon from the rest of the world and particularly from China. Um, and during the 2000s, when China was growing extremely rapidly, um, this sort of net import was growing. But since around about 2010, probably the financial crisis, uncoincidentally, <laughs> this um, growth has sort of stopped. And so now the net trade is sort of more or less flat in terms of carbon. So what that means is this, that if, if your production or territorial emissions are going down, then your consumption emissions are going down at a similar rate. Um, and this has a lot to do with China. So China was basically driving all these numbers previously, and it more or less still is. But the net exports from China is, in terms of carbon is, is more or less flat now. Um, yeah, it's also a little bit more complex than that um, these are all very aggregate numbers when you get down to different industries and specifics um, there will be a lot more nuance um, for example some sectors may be hit more heavily by um, climate policies in for example Europe um, you know, maybe the steel sector feels that they're hit too hard or, or maybe their steel facilities were getting quite old and so the easy solution is to shut down um, with a climate policy and then new production comes on in China, um, for example. I'm not sure that that's such a huge effect. Maybe a, a, probably the biggest effect is just general economic growth. So anyone would probably note that they buy a lot more crap than they used to buy. Um, so we're buying a lot of stuff, um, which sort of doesn't necessarily have a, a long lifetime or let's say there might be toys or little gadgets or, or whatever. 
And that sort of consumption or clothes, as I think we mentioned at some stage earlier, um, uh, clothes don't last as long, so we're buying more clothes and so on. So all these consumable products is probably what's driving a lot of this. We're buying a lot of stuff. And as we grow, we just keep buying more and more stuff. And most of that stuff comes from China. <laughs> it makes me wonder why... So earlier we were speaking about uh, sort of the political divide on uh, climate change. And it makes me wonder why groups who want to see less globalization... I imagine uh, one thing that COVID has shown us is that when the global supply chain to a certain extent shuts down, you see an improvement in um, or reduced emissions. And so you could see people starting to say, you know, coming from a different political uh, direction, using climate change to argue for smaller governments and, and, and more localized infrastructure. Um, it's funny that no one, I haven't heard any, any arguments in this direction. Have you? Oh, there's, there's lots. Yes. Is that okay? But, <laughs> but this, this comes back to the stuff we were discussing earlier where you have, um, many on the climate side have solutions, which sound like, um, well, maybe big government was the right, wrong word, but let's say meeting leftist agenda issues mm. such as local production and, mm very little evidence that local production is better for the climate. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe better for other things, um, but climate-wise, no. Um, mm. Is that because of the efficiency of supply chains uh, on the global scale? Or? Yeah, well, you would, let's say if you did things locally, you would have to completely change your consumption patterns um, mm -hmm. to match whatever suits your local environment. So let's say Norwegians would just eat potatoes and fish and that is it. Um, and likewise in other countries. So, so basically, if you take New Zealand, New Zealand has a great climate for growing apples and sheep. And it is so much better that it's better for the climate to send those apples and sheep to, mm. let's say, the UK than it is for the UK to do it in their less receptive climate, for I example. See. But that, that's on the food side. There's lots of examples like that. That's not to say that some trade is stupid, um, you know, flying flowers around in aeroplanes uh, or whatever um, doesn't make sense. Um, even, and there's various reasons why that may be, may be done. But there's other aspects here um, also in terms of environmental solutions. So let's say little Norway is not going to be able to produce um, wind turbines or electric cars or whatever remotely cheaper um, if they do it locally than if they did mm -hmm. it um, using utilizing global supply chains. And a lot of the cost declines that you see in electric vehicles, in batteries, in solar, in wind is because of China and because mm -hmm. of the production capacity of China. So if you want to solve the world's climate problems, then mm. um, I think trade needs to be exploited to its fullest. Mm. That, I think, gets messed in with issues like overconsumption of buying, I don't know, some plastic crap because you had to buy some toy for the kid because it's his birthday and everyone feels that they, that they need to buy something for the kid. Or, and these sort of emotional things that may mean we buy a lot of stuff that we don't need to buy that gets mixed in with some of these big 
drivers of why we need trade, such as technology cost declines and uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to see how we would solve the climate problem not using not by not exploiting local supply chains. I see. So you, essentially, the problem is big. You want to use every tool you have in your toolbox. Our already functioning global supply chain is one of those tools if used effectively. Uh, yes. Can I can I just ask um, on, the, on in terms of accounting? So when when you see these charts of you know this country is emitting this much per capita and this how how is that accounting done? Is that actual measurements being done locally on the ground or is that just someone saying oh we have this power plant producing at this you know wattage uh, for this amount of time um how is that accounting done and when you add up all the individual countries do you end up with a global number that makes sense or is there sort of you know because there's also ships and planes and god knows what else that's uh, in the mix do those numbers actually work yes <laughs> yeah, you, you give me the you give me these long complex questions. I mean, with a simple yes or no answer. Yes, it works. Um, yeah. It reminds me of an interview of um, what's his name? I forgot his name. One of the richest people in Australia, who's now a Packer. Um, mm. And I saw him get, get an interview once, and he basically just sat there saying yes, no, and the interviewer <laughs> was just going nuts. <laughs> but. Um, so, yes, the numbers add up, but there's lots of buts to that. And how, how is it done? So, the, we have good statistics on energy. So, how much coal, oil and gas is used and produced. Um, and then we know how much carbon is inside that coal, oil and gas. And then you multiply the two together and um, you basically get the CO2 that goes to the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. There are complications, but just on the energy side, um, why do we have good use of coal, oil, uh, good statistics on coal, oil, and gas? I guess it's because there's a lot of money associated with it. Um, so therefore, it probably attracts good accounting. We have numbers on production, so how much has come out of this oil field. We have numbers on consumption, how much did this service station sell? Um, and you can basically do a reconciliation. So if you're an accountant and you know you've got your income and expenditure, you add them up and you see what happens at the end. For energy statistics, you basically do the same. How much is produced, how much is consumed. Oops, they don't match. Why not? You go back through your numbers. Okay, I made a mistake here. Fix it up and then you end up sort of reconciling the numbers. There are some differences and imbalances and complications, but that's the the big picture. Um, Some sectors are harder, um, particularly when you get to agricultural sectors. how much methane or nitrous oxide can depend on climate, can change from year to year, um, can depend on what you feed the cow, and so on and so forth. So it's much more complex. And then we can also do this as uh, atmospheric observations. So uh, we're putting CO2 or whatever into the atmosphere. Where does it go? What's the increase in atmospheric concentration, which we can measure extremely accurately? And then we can sort of reconcile these numbers from a top-down, bottom-up sort of perspective. That's a satellite the, measurement? No, no, no. You can measure, you know, just take a sample of air and how much CO2 mm-hmm. is in it. And they do this at specific sites around the world. Um, so you can do a sort of reconciliation there. And, you know, we do a pretty good job, 
variability is the biggest concern. So we do have variability in these um, in the amount of carbon taken up, for example, if we have an El Nino, La Nina, uh, which people may have heard of, then that can change the amount of carbon taken up in land, which mm. affects the amount of CO2 that stays in the atmosphere. And <clears throat> so you have all these sorts of complications. But by and large, the numbers sort of agree. Um, of course, there's some error and mm -hmm. You know, we don't know it to significant digits, you know, plus minus 5% or 10%, depending on the country and, and so on. Higher uncertainty for methane and, and so on. Um, <clears throat> there was a story in the Washington Post a, a couple of weeks ago saying that there's a big gap between what countries report. This is also true. Um, but when you talk about what countries report, there's also... Um, uh, uh, some issues of capacity. Some mm -hmm. countries are potentially deliberately trying not to report because this relates to negotiations and what they might be trying to negotiate, climate negotiations for, you know, more time or more whatever. So, you know, better not give them our good statistics because then they might think that we're on top of our game, <laughs> that type of thing. So... This is what I was a little bit curious about because I was wondering, especially you know, if there if there eventually is a comprehensive uh, tax, let's say on the carbon you're emitting, then the accounting might start to get much more muddy. Definitely, and this was an issue. So the Europe has an emissions trading system, mm -hmm. and when that first started in, I forget now, two thousand and five or something like that. Um, the, the price was, you know, doing all right. And then suddenly the price had a big drop, basically, to, to zero or thereabouts. And this was essentially uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So the reduction that was required in the emissions trading system was basically in the uncertainty band of the emissions statistics. <clears throat> and so this is, a yeah, a, an important problem. So there is a lot more research and activity now on aspects of verification. So um, we now have satellites that can make various measurements, although it can't, they often can't measure emissions, but they can measure what's in the atmosphere. So you need to link the satellite observations with models, try and figure out what emissions may be. And so there's a lot of research going on now to try and figure out how we can use observations of different sorts to pin down and say, well, hey, hang on, you said this, but we can see that this is the answer type thing. So there's a lot more work in that space now. Um, but I'd say still some way to go. Do you think, um, so is, when it comes to uh, lowering emissions, do you think at this point it's mainly on the level of policy, accounting, economics? Do, do, if, if all of that uh, was working, we had political will, do we actually have the technology already in place where we can, uh, effectively address at this point? You know, do we have the drawdown technology already in place? It just needs to be scaled up or um, yeah. is that not yet the case? Uh, we have the technology. This is again a yes, no question. <laughs> yes, no question. That's right. Yes, we have it all. Of course, <laughs> there's all, all, also a long answer. Um, so that means different things. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about solar, wind, electric vehicles, whatever, you know, we have all that, and we know we can do it um, clearly. Um, 
we can do it better and costs can go down and so on and so forth. So improvements can be made. So there's a lot of um, a lot of scope to improve. But let's say we have all the technologies more or less on the shelf, assuming also that they improve over time. They're all on the shelf, let's say, to get uh, roughly half the job done. Mm-hmm. Um, then when you start to get further ahead, some decades ahead, then you know, we have some ideas on how we can decarbonize steel, for example, but we're not sure of the best way to do it. We're not sure how much it's going to cost. Um, and we don't really have many good examples of it around the world. So mm-hmm. let's say decarbonizing steel, you can't say we've nailed the technologies in the same way that you could say we've nailed solar. Mm-hmm. And so we need to do work on those technologies, cement, a lot of the metal industry, some parts of manufacturing, long distance shipping, short distance you can do electric, long distance different options, mm-hmm. um, aviation, same. Um, how are we going to decarbonize aviation and so on and so forth. So there, there's certainly lots of sectors that have challenges. Those sectors also, the ones I just mentioned, aviation and shipping also have infrastructure with a very long lifetime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you build a plane or a ship now and then it's going to be emitting in 2050 probably as well. So there are additional challenges in those sectors because of the slow turnover of capital mm-hmm. in a sense. So just the momentum of the system, the fact that you have you know, this old technology. So then what are the, if, if you could suggest policy, what are the policy changes that could be, or could or should be made today that would have the greatest immediate uh, impact uh, in your mind? Um, everything. Uh, <laughs> I think this is a, a common problem to oversimplify the problem that there needs to be a single solution. I think this probably goes back also, this is maybe a, let's say, a mistake of the scientific community and you know, often talking about, well, that the most efficient solution is a carbon tax or a carbon price or, or whatever, which um, may be correct. But we live in a in a world that has all sorts of um, irregularities, in a sense, and you can't do that politically in very many jurisdictions. And so you have to implement all sorts of different policies, which in a way replicate the effect of your carbon price. And that will probably be done sector by sector, and country by country. Each country will do it differently depending on whatever the context they have. So, in a sense, I would I would say. You need to implement, or policymakers, governments, whatever, need to implement whatever policy they can get implemented. And it's not going to be the best policy or the most efficient one. And mm-hmm. in five years' time, we'll go back and say, that was a stupid idea. Why don't we just do it the better way um, now that we agree on it? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So whatever policy you can get done um, is... And you can just... And then... And then because that's starting to get country specific and sector level, then you can just pull out all sorts of favorite policies out of the hat mm-hmm. in a sense, and you can implement them. But you know, anything that um, ensures that CO2 stops going into the atmosphere and <laughs> renewables mm-hmm. get built, um, which is a, a simple way to, yeah, a simple but non-helpful way to, to put it. But yeah. Now, just taking electric vehicles, just as a nice example, in, in Norway, you know, they've figured out various incentive structure to get that to work in Norway. So basically every car sold in Norway is now electric, close mm-hmm. to, 
Um, not everyone can implement what Norway has done for a variety of reasons, but they may be able to implement many elements of it. And so maybe they don't go as fast as Norway, but maybe they can go pretty fast mm-hmm. um, on electric vehicles um, by implementing policies which match the circumstances in the individual countries. Mm. So Norway just offers as, as an example of how it works in Norway. Um, So one size uh, fits all solutions may, first of all, not be realistic. And if they were realistic, they may only be implementable on timescales that are too late (laughs) in some sense. So there's no, it's a good way to put it. There's no one size fits all. It's everyone has to find their own shoe in a sense, the one that fits them. But let's look at uh, the, the solution that people do point out is carbon taxes. How do you price, how how is it priced? You you know, if, if we look at, so let's look at drawdown, for example. How much does it cost to pull down a ton of carbon out of the air as opposed to the price of a ton of coal? Um, should that be priced in? Would that sort of you know, speed up the development of uh, drawdown technology? Or, you know, how, how, what are some sensible ways, uh, even if it has to be locally uh, in Norway, for example, of, of pricing carbon? Or, or do so, they exist? Yeah, so there's different ways to approach that. Some There's this concept known as the social cost of carbon where you try and figure out how much impact, climate impact, there's a, you know increase in carbon dioxide emissions cause. And from that, you figure out a price and that should be the price that you implement. Um, they have a wide range of estimates and um, there's various controversies about the methodology and, and so on. I tend, you know, putting the practical hat on again, I tend to think, you know, implement whatever price you can get on carbon and it's probably too low. But um, yeah. but then I guess you could think about it. There's, uh, I should say, there's another complication here, which is it's not necessarily the carbon price per se that matters, but how long and how confident are you that the carbon price will remain there? So mm-hmm. if you needed a carbon price of $50 a tonne for a tonne of CO2 for this technology to be better than that technology, then if the price gets to $50 a tonne, then you may not change the technology unless you're confident that that price mm. differential will last for the next 20 or 30 years to justify you investing in this technology. So the extent to which that carbon price is high is also a very important indicator. And if you can't guarantee that, then you probably need other policy instruments to ensure that carbon price. Oh, sorry, to ensure that companies invest in whatever Mm -hmm. technology. So if you're talking about, let's say, um, decarbonizing the steel sector, $50 a tonne may not justify you investing in trying out a new technology unless you know it's going to be $50 a ton or more for the next 30 years. Mm -hmm. So you also have that temporal issue, which is important. Um, But I think any sort of price helps um, for a variety of reasons. And the higher it goes, the more it helps. So getting into carbon dioxide removal or drawdown, 
which you called it. Um, it's pretty expensive, and so you would probably need a carbon price in excess of $100 a tonne, maybe $200 a tonne, guaranteed for many decades to get some sort of meaningful investment in that sector. At the moment, it's very boutique sort of, um, mm. you know, you can find out the people that are willing to pay a ridiculous amount for their carbon mm. removal and it's in the spin-up phase, investment phase, so people are willing to do silly things with their money in a sense. Um, it's relatively small scale. But then um, if you had, so let's say I was saying, you know, maybe that's $100 or $200 a tonne, mm. whatever. But if you had a carbon price of $50 a tonne, which is mm. not enough to incentivize that technology, it'd be enough to wipe out many other technologies. So mm. coal would probably disappear pretty quickly at $50 a tonne. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, and so on and so forth. Oil would probably still hang around, but um, it would start to be less attractive mm -hmm. <laughs> and much easier to deploy electric vehicles and, and so on and so forth. So, um, And maybe combined with subsidies, uh, removing subsidies. Removing subsidies, yes. And mm -hmm. all sorts of other... This other thing that comes back to this, what we're talking about, one size fits all or one size doesn't fit all, is quite often countries have all sorts of regulations in place which might unintentionally favour certain technologies. Mm -hmm. So you'll often hear, you know, stupid little examples of, you know, I could have done this really obvious thing which would have really helped, but because mm -hmm. of weird regulation X that no one ever thought of or ever knew that would be a problem, all mm -hmm. of a sudden becomes a problem. But to change this regulation X uh, <laughs> requires some, you know, government process and both houses of parliament and all sorts of complications. So there's also can be lots of regulations which um, mm. make it more difficult to um, deploy certain technologies. Like um, Germany switching off its uh, nuclear plants, for instance. Yeah, but even things like um, transmission, putting solar panels on your house. Um, how do you deal with the regulations, technicalities of connections and safety and prices and all sorts of crazy things. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Electric vehicles, um, what sort of skills does a technician need to be? Do they need to be a mechanic or an electrician to fix an electric car? Mm -hmm. um, you know, all these sorts of sort of things are everywhere, um, but you don't often think about them. Quite often, you know, you hear, you know, you might listen to a podcast about some cool guy or something that tried to, you know, make his house zero carbon. And quite often the discussion is not, you know, an hour chat about the cool technologies, but uh, an hour chat about the fights they had to have with various bureaucracies because of the regulations. You know, you can't have that size window in your house because the law says <laughs> this and you're saying you want this. It's not allowed. And yeah. yeah, but it has makes no difference. We know that, but this is what the law says type mm. thing. So um, you, you often hear about those struggles. Um, so this, this is not really a subsidy, but um, in a sense, it's indirectly a subsidy because those rules or regulations tend Push to favor certain mm. technologies. Yeah. But that, that, 
in some sense could be read in a positive way. I mean, it sounds like these are all things that are surmountable. You can milk all of these efficiencies slowly out of the system uh, as time goes on. Does that sort of make you a little bit optimistic uh, thinking of things along these lines or? Um, uh, the thing, I hadn't thought about that one, but the thing that makes me sort of optimistic is um, that I, I think people, you know, when given the chance, will be pretty optimistic and happy to have various new technologies. So, you know, mobile phone is a good example. You know, maybe people are a little bit skeptical in the first days, but, um, you know, now everyone has mobile phone and can't get off it. Um, so in, in terms of bringing along the new technologies, I, um, that could go much better and faster than what you could think. Um, maybe is the fear where I'm more pessimistic is just hanging on to the old technology, um, mm -hmm. not believing that you can make a phone call with a mobile phone, that mm -hmm. you need to have the landline. Um, and it's just sort of once you push the person and get them to use, oh, actually the mobile does work. Oh, and by the way, it's better. I don't need to stand next to the phone. I can walk around the house or, or whatever. <laughs> so they tend to see the benefits. So it's a bit like that with electric cars, for example. People are skeptical. Oh, maybe the battery will run out or, or whatever. But, you know, people didn't realize, but their cars run out of fuel too. So um, it's not as if it's a new concept to put energy back in your car. So it's just a matter of getting people warm to the technology so letting people let go of the old and grab hold of the new, um, I think that's maybe the thing that makes me more so worried. And this is more of a problem, I think, when you go to developing countries, we're talking about before the rapid growth that's needed in mm -hmm. those countries, then for them to let go of some of their existing technologies, such as coal power, mm -hmm. for example, is more difficult. Pushing further in a pessimistic direction, are there <laughs> are there some sort of hard limit? So we spoke about Germany uh, implementing a lot of uh, green technology, so bringing in solar power and, and wind and this sort of thing. Are there any sort of hard engineering uh, limitations that they're sort of running up against? For example, just maybe the space to uh, implement these solutions, for example, because uh, these solutions are much less energy dense than say coal or, or nuclear um or is this not happening yeah i wouldn't say that it's a hard physical constraint i'd say maybe it's more of a I suppose to use hard hard social constraint mm. so it's not as if germany is say short of land but it might be that germany is short of land where people can't see <laughs> the wind turbine or, or whatever um, and this is certainly a problem in, in Norway, um, you know, even though the percentage of land covered by wind turbines is probably pretty close to insignificant, it so happens that there are people that live near them and can see them. And <laughs> this is a, becomes a problem. So, you know, if you, so essentially if you had, um, yeah, I guess if you sort of just take the sort of theoretical approach, if you had something that's more energy dense like nuclear, then you should have less of those problems overall than if you have something that's not so dense like wind. Um, but then I also wonder if this is just a, a case of people adapting and getting used to it and, and so on and so forth. Um, 
So there's many impacts that you mm. see when you drive through a country that we don't think about. You know, there's fences and farmhouses and shacks that have fallen down and old factories and roads and et cetera. So there's stuff everywhere. Um, mm. And now you put up a wind turbine and it's all of a sudden an eyesore. Um, <laughs> it might just be people getting used to the fact that the cows are eating their grass, but they're eating the grass in a paddock that's got a few wind turbines sat in it. Hmm. Um, and people just get used to it after a while. I, I, I don't know. So it's a, so I think there's increasingly conflicts related to this. Um, but yeah, how problematic it will be into the future, I think it's, going, it's more difficult to say. Hmm. Um, yeah, hmm. if people get used to it, basically. In terms of people getting used to things, where do you think we'd be if, um, so if, if we had never had Chernobyl, no Long Island, no Fukushima, um, where do you think we'd be on the uh, on the carbon path right now today? It's sort of an interesting question. So if you go back to probably the 80s or thereabouts and you looked at scenarios of how the energy system was going to develop around the world, it was... Um, Basically, we're, we're heading for a 100% nuclear world. <laughs> so, um, uh, but something something went wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, so of course, it's hard to know. And, and it's also hard to, to pinpoint the blame as well. So if we didn't have those accidents, or... Maybe it was partly a response to those accidents. So maybe the nuclear industry, if they were, um, I don't know, put more into innovation and developing new reactor types and getting them deployed and so on and so forth, then maybe uh, it could have got over those problems. I hmm. I don't know. So I, I'm not an expert on this, but I do hear some, let's say, in quotes, nuclear experts talk a little bit more about the, the role that the nuclear industry has played, particularly when you get to cost decline. So nuclear now is generally seen as very expensive, always having cost overruns, et cetera. Why is that? Why is the mm. nuclear industry not being on top of this? Why didn't they get on top of it? What's um, about that industry? Um, mm. So it might, yeah. So whether it's the accidents per se that are the problem or whether other things within the industry which may be more risky with any big technology. So in nuclear, maybe the hope is on the small modular sort of reactors. Mm. Um, but then maybe also their day is coming too late uh, and solar and wind will just be too far ahead. Mm. And maybe those technologies just don't get a, a foot in because they're too expensive, too late, if you know what I mean. Um, but you now I'm sort of the we need all the tools in the toolbox sort of guy. So, um, and as we've been mentioning, you know, regional context is very important. Mm. And so, I would sort of encourage investments in new nuclear technologies, mm. noting that maybe you don't get payoff. So, this is like that with any technology, mm. you got to but- try. But somewhere like Australia, where we, we don't really have earthquakes, we don't really have tsunamis, we have stable government, we have 
quite a bit of uranium. This actually might be a sense. I mean, politically, it's not going to happen, I don't think. But um, this might have been the place in the world to uh, consider it that's not doing yeah, it, let's so say. Yeah, if you were going to um, build a nuclear industry, it would make a lot of sense to do it in Australia, in Australia <laughs> when you consider all those factors. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And it could have been an industry as well. So, um, you know, reprocessing of waste and, and so on and so forth um, could have been a, you know, let's say a business opportunity for Australia. But, um, yeah, of course, there's, yeah, fear around that sort of thing. So, um would probably never come to fruition. You never know. Um, but I, but I, in a sense, I think the nuclear industry has a new chance, if you like, with smaller modular reactors. Mm-hmm. Um, or the thorium designs that China's trying around at the moment. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think there's all sorts of, um, you know, difference. You know, I'm not an expert on the, all the the sort um, the, the different types of the smaller um, reactors, but you know you can also put them on ships, for example. So you know nuclear submarines is the, the latest thing to talk about. But mm. so it's not as if we don't have those technologies. It still comes down to cost, and there's quite a few um, uh, technologies around. Um, that I don't think are thorium based, but um, uh, that also have sort of in a sense inbuilt natural safety features and so on and so forth so if they do have meltdown it's very contained mm-hmm. and, and so on and much smaller advantage of smaller um, is in terms of production and um, you can put it through a production line and mass produce them mm-hmm. then you can really get the cost down and i suppose um, also then there's less risk of uh, proliferation right if you have a small amount of uh, nuclear material and that's stolen, say, or goes missing, that's less of an issue than if you have this huge reactor uh, with yeah. a big storage. Yeah. But um, on on the subject of Australia, um, I'm just curious to get uh, your thoughts on something. So uh, in the news cycle a couple of years back, there was all this talk about clean coal. Uh what do people mean when they see... Does it make any sense? Is 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 there any... Is there any um, is there any way, is there, is, is there sort of a nice reading you can give this or, or just make no sense at all? Yeah, it makes no sense at all. <laughs> I like giving you the short answers. But um, yeah, so th- there's different meanings of clean coal um, that sort of pop up. So um, particularly amongst politicians when they say clean coal or maybe probably industry, but one element of clean coal is just the dirty plant, which is a little bit more efficient. So if you like, the, the fanciest, most modern version of a coal power plant is sometimes called clean coal. Um, it's almost as polluting as the old coal, <laughs> just a new. So maybe it's better to be called a new coal power plant. Um, but then there's uh, the range of clean coal technologies where you have carbon capture and storage. So you basically put a a big bag over the top of your power plant, capture all the fumes, the, the exhaust gases, and strip out the CO2, the carbon dioxide, and, and sequester it under the ground, usually in old oil fields. So that, um, that would reduce your emissions from a coal power plant 80 to 90%. Also, 
makes it more expensive. Mm. So I guess there's the the clean coal, which is the total, um, let's say the bullshit version, is basically a, a clean coal, which is an existing power, uh, just a new coal power plant, uh, which is modern, uh, it's still dirty. And the, the proper clean coal is with carbon capture and storage, which does not get rid of all the carbon. But... Mm-hmm. Um, but if, so coal with carbon capture and storage is still much more polluting than wind and solar and so on and so forth. It's also much more expensive, so it's not that cheap mm-hmm. to put carbon capture and storage on coal. Um, it depends, of course, on location, the type of power plant, etc. Mm-hmm. But um, you're probably looking at you know, $50 a tonne to do coal with CCS, like a carbon tax would have to be $50 a, a tonne, carbon dioxide. If you got $50 a tonne, you would just go out and build solar and wind and all sorts of mm-hmm. things everywhere. Um, it wouldn't justify the expense of a big technology and the risky technologies like coal with CCS. Uh, any coal with CCS facility that's been built has had troubles of some sort. Well, it's not so... A the other thing I've heard said, and I'm not, again, I have no idea where these arguments actually lie. I've heard people talk about, so Australia exports a lot of coal. And there are people usually quite conservative who say, look, if we don't sell coal, um, these other countries that we sell it to will burn from their local stores. And Australian coal is particularly clean with low sulfur content. And so... You know, one one thing that I could imagine is if you have if you're burning, um, so I, I know that the out the outgassing of a of a power plant, the flue gas, um, has things like sulfur in it, and you have to regulate the output temperature to minimize the damage that's done by the flue gas on a chemical basis. And so maybe there's a situation where um, if you can run your flue gas at a higher temperature, then you can run the uh, plant more efficiently, and uh, you know, this is the sort of thing I was wondering about. Is is there any justification, or, or does it make sense when people say, "Look, if, if you know, if we don't sell them that coal, they're just going to use worse coal that's you know has higher sulfur or is more dirty or it's brown or or does this also not hold up?" No, it's a ridiculous argument. <laughs> in mm-hmm. short, and, and Norway makes the same argument that the oil, um, you know, your coal is dirty, ours is clean. Type <laughs> This would help if the solving the problem was just a marginal change in emissions. So if you just want to, you know, mine a little adjustment to the knobs, um, yeah, we can get a little bit cleaner coal here and that will solve the problem, then sure. But the thing is we need to have zero emissions. So maybe, um, uh, let's say, a, a dirty coal power plant emits 100 units, then the clean coal power plant using the nice black coal with no sulfur or, or whatever you know maybe you get 90 or 95 units so you know you may, maybe you're saving yourself five or ten percent um mm-hmm. you're not saving yourself a hundred percent which is what needs to happen so yeah, those arguments are, are pretty pretty weak arguments mm-hmm. um and if the coal was of so poor quality that it would probably get um sort of priced out of the market in some cases. Um, although, having said that, I would say part of the problem with some coal, um, particularly brown coal, which is basically dirt with some black stuff mixed into it, 
um, rather inefficient, sometimes wettish and, and so on. Quite often you have a coal power plant right next to the brown coal. This is the case in Germany, mm. in Australia, in the, the uh, where was it? The, Hunter Valley. Or... No, um, in, in, in Melbourne, Victoria, um, where some power plants were just shut down. I forget the name of the place. Um, mm. Some places in India, the, mm. the coal is basically just scraping the dirt off the ground and shoveling <laughs> it straight into the coal power plant. And so it's ridiculously cheap. Mm. And... Um, and this sort of coal is is sort of problematic, but I mean, you you don't get much gain if you did use black coal um, or the good stuff. You you get you gain something, but nowhere near enough. Mm-hmm. So, but we're talking minor changes in emissions. So, looking to the future, then, how many years? Will it be, according to the models, uh, before we're hitting negative emissions? If 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 you could, if you could make some sort of a projection, that will depend on the amount of mitigation. It was the Latrobe Valley, by the way, in, in Victoria. Um, that will depend on the um, how much policy. Let's say if we went as hard as possible. And every country went as hard as possible, and we got to zero in 2050. Then, after 2050, you would get negative emissions mm-hmm. globally on a net basis. Um, and of course, if you go slower, and it was 2070, then after 2070, so as soon as you would get zero, you would think that you would go negative some sometime after that. Although, how negative could be a question. And then, actually, if we did get down, so we currently emit, let's say, about 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide. If we got down and we're emitting, let's say, 1 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide, would we then consider that close enough to zero mm. um, and would keep emitting that much and never go negative? I don't know. Mm. So if we had sustained emissions of 1 um, billion tonnes per year, so I've never done this calculation. I'm going to do a calculation on the top of my head. But let's say if we, we have a carbon budget to stay below 1.5 degrees is about 500 billion tonnes. So if we emit cumulatively 500 billion tonnes from, from now to sometime in the future, when we get to 500 billion tonnes, then would be at about 1.5 degrees. If I was only emitting 1 billion tonne per year, <laughs> I'll pick an easy sum for me, then that would be 500 years. So yeah. if you emitted 1 billion tonne, you could emit for 500 years to use that same carbon budget. So maybe we don't actually go negative. Um, I see. We just get very close to, to zero. And then on the human scale, you don't even see the difference. Right. You wouldn't be able to detect it within the variability of the climate. Like the, the temperature um, you know, goes up and down, um, global average. Um, uh, uh, variability, I think, is about... 0.5 degrees Celsius mm. per year on average, something like that. So you can go up and down that much mm. each year, um, globally averaged. And if you're at one billion ton a year, the whatever change that would make would be within mm. that variation, I would think. Um, but then there's different types of negative emissions, and this is also something important to to sort of point out. There's some sometimes called gross and sometimes called net. Mm-hmm. So what we were talking about just now was sort of a net. So globally, everything adds to a number which is negative. 
but from now until that time we might have some let's what's called gross negative emissions so carbon dioxide removal so for example maybe we're emitting 40 billion tons but we're taking out 1 billion ton per year mm -hmm. so on net you're 39 billion tons so we do have examples already of um, afforestation basically growing trees um, where we do take carbon out of the atmosphere today although it's just at a scale nowhere big enough to offset our fossil emissions and yeah maybe if i just add even if we did do all the tree planting in the world that we could do um, would maybe take up five or ten billion tons per year and we mm. currently emit 40. so yeah. there's no way around reducing emissions is but are there any countries like I don't know Bhutan or Iceland or somewhere that are does any is anyone running negative currently net? That's an extremely technical question. <laughs> so how do you define the land use emissions is a part of a challenge here. So you could take a country like Bhutan, which is main, mainly forest, and if you consider all that forest to be what's known as managed land then you would say that they're net negative, And I think they actually do already call themselves net negative. Um, um, but then that's a very particular definition. So there's different ways of defining land mm -hmm. use. And um, one way which is often used in the scientific community is basically there needs to be a change in land use. So there needs to be changes happening on a particular parcel of land. And the land where there's no changes happening, you know, the Amazon is just staying the Amazon, then that's not considered land use change. There's a definition which is used in the policy world, which is called managed land. And countries basically self-define what managed land is. So maybe if you put a fence around the Amazon and call it a national park, then you can say it's managed. And so there's various ways that you can expand your forest to be managed. Mm -hmm. um, and when you start to capture forest, which is not having a land use change, so forest that remains forest over multiple time periods, this is where a lot of the carbon is taken up. So butan will be negative because it has existing forests which are taking up carbon, not because they're actively growing trees or that type of thing. And this is a big um, problem in carbon accounting, which we didn't talk about before, but mentioning now is the land use components mm -hmm. are, have problems with how you define it um, and very hard to estimate accurately what emissions are in different land use, um, different types of land use, different forests, how much carbon is taken up in this forest or that forest is extremely difficult to estimate. I think the way I would understand it then, and from what you've responded, I would say then butane is not net negative currently. I mean, if I it, again, call it net negative. No. no. Okay, so we have nowhere on earth then that. <laughs> no, nowhere on earth net negative, and we we shouldn't expect that either. This is also another interesting policy point. Many companies, um, say Apple would be an example, I think, or Microsoft or various companies like that want to go net negative and so buy expensive carbon capture credits or afforestation credits to offset their emissions and offset their emissions in the past 
um, which is, in a sense, you could view it as just a waste of resources. Um, they could better be using that money to help a country um, with really cheap mitigation options, but it's expensive for them. So, you know, maybe $10 a tonne is cheap for Microsoft, but very expensive for Butan, um, mm. for example. Uh, and so perhaps they should be helping there. So we're at 40 billion tonnes. Um, and so that means that we have to get emissions down a hell of a lot um, before it makes sense to have negative emissions or carbon dioxide removal. So we should focus on getting those emissions down. I, I see. So the, 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 it's so difficult to do drawdown or to, in the West, say, you could spend those dollars much more efficient, efficiently in somewhere which is using, I don't know, very dirty, dirty coal. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, yeah. So just, uh, I guess, the same, same thing with a different example. But um, I don't know, if you've got you know, $200 to, to spend and it costs $200 a tonne to get one tonne of CO2 out of the atmosphere with some shiny technology, or for $200, you could get um, $10 a tonne, um, reduce emissions 20 tonnes in another country, mm. then for the climate, it's better to take those 20 tonnes um, at a much lower price than to mm. take that one ton. So if you're mm. a company, you can have a nice brochure with some green leaves and stuff and say, look, we are negative emissions now because we bought this forest. Mm. Um, that's a good PR exercise potentially, but it's not really helping climate. I see. So it's sort of like uh, with the plastic issue, the difference between going into um, the ocean and picking up plastic or stopping the plastic flowing down the rivers to start with in some sense. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So then that means, so when I, <laughs> when I buy plane tickets or train tickets or whatever it is I'm buying to go somewhere and I can add that one euro to make my trip green, uh, what, what happens to that euro? Is, is that a valuable spend there or? It probably a, means that some um, fancy marketing uh, company gets to go out and have a nice dinner and, and build a bigger house. <laughs> so... Yeah, that that sort of it's let's say that's a relatively unregulated industry, and it's quite often, depending on the player, um, some of those credits can be quite questionable whether they are actually good credits or, or not. And so there's now companies which specialise in making these credits, and you can get good ones and bad ones, but um, overall, you're so, yeah, so you can get good ones and bad ones. So buyer beware, make sure you're getting the good ones. Um, but overall, you're better not to take that flight. I see. Yeah. So you, you might feel better about ticking the box. You know, I'll pay, you know, $10 and I can forget about it. My life is offset. But um, that's not solving the climate problem at all. Hmm. Just making you feel good. So in terms of uh, feel good, <laughs> I want to wrap this up and I thought maybe I'd try to do it on a positive note. Um, so what's your dream scenario moving forward? So, I mean, you're, you're obviously in your field for because you enjoy it or, or there's some reason why you're in your field. Is there some positive future that you're driving towards or is there some dream scenario that, that you can see unfolding or some, what's, what's a feasible uh, path that you can see forward as, as a dream? I guess my 
dream scenario would be for um, people to be happy to embrace change, maybe. So not hold on to the old um, and to embrace the new, which sounds quite abstract, but as we were saying before, I think we have many, most, whatever, all of the technologies available. It's we're just holding back on using them. And the most frustrating part about that is a lot of the technologies um, are actually beneficial. So your life will be better if you embrace those new technologies. Um, so I guess my dream would be that people start to realize and see um, the, the positive gains that they, that they have. Um, mm. And yeah, so it's not quite often climate is framed as, you know, we need to go live in a cave type thing, which is not really the case at all. I'm sure as a society, we'll, we'll continue to develop and evolve even if we address the climate problem. Um, it's sort of like there's a just hanging on to the past or, or whatever, which I, I think tends to hold us back at so many levels, um, political, social, even in science, um, and so on and so forth. Escaped sapiens. <laughs>